Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello, and welcome to chapter 156 of the Corona Diaries. Hello. 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 Hello, everyone. Um, I was. We said last night. We we exchanged messages last night, didn't we, to say that we were going to be. What did we say we were going to be? Lucid. What else? What did informative. We, was it informative? I can't. I can't quite remember. I'll have a quick look. Hang on. This is last night's text messages. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm going to try for lucid and insightful this week. Insightful. I've decided. That's what I said, and then you said, just for comedy value. Me too. <laughs> And then lots of hysterical laughing faces. And then lots of hysterical yeah. laughter. Yeah, it's not gonna. It's not gonna happen, is it? Yeah, it's not I gonna don't happen. Know. You never know. We should. Well, we should aim. Well, we should aim high, uh, and then see. You know. <laughs> maybe that's where we've been going wrong. We've never aimed high. Well, I aimed high when I was young, and I used to be able to pee over a wall. Uh, but these days, uh, it's sort of uh, ruin ruining the footwear. You right, know, I'm at that. I'm at that sort of height. Right, I could tell you a story about that, but I'm not going oh, to. All right, then don't. I won't. I'll tell. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Okay. And we'll, and we'll. So, in terms of fallout from last week, everybody seemed to like last week's episode. Paul Forrester uh, thinks we should start doing travel books. <laughs> There's a gag there. There's one of Mike Hunter's gags. Sorry, sorry, I haven't got past peeing over You've a got- wall yet. <laughs> Go on, then. Finish off peeing up, peeing no, over I a wall. I can't remember how it's set up, but the but the punchline is. Uh, you know, can you get it over the counter? And if I could get it over the counter, I wouldn't need the Viagra. That's how it goes. But I, but I can't remember quite quite right. the first part of it. You're you're off to we're we're recording early, so you can go to Racket, aren't you? Yes, that's how, that's how your day's going. Just just ask Mike to tell you that joke. Just record it into your phone, <laughs> and we'll drop it in. We'll drop it in next time. <laughs> can you get it over the counter? In fact, we ought to do that. Get every member of the band, get everybody in racket to give you a joke, and we'll start feeding them into episodes. Right? Okay. Well, they're not there today. I'm, I, it's just me because the, Lucy wants me in uh, for a, an interview for the. Oh, it's your recording uh, week, isn't it? It is. Yes. So, so I think she wanted to take me upstairs and uh, have a look at me old stage clothes and see if I've see if I've got any recollections of what what's. <laughs> hanging in the roof <laughs> oh good luck lucy with that <laughs> there's probably a couple of sound engineers dangling up there as well somewhere that took their own lives during albums oh we'll start with lucy then lucy needs to give us a joke <laughs> okay right and then just start collecting jokes from the band and from people in racket as you go around all right it'll probably be something about dogs or oh, bound to be or into hammock and chips yeah good yeah. luck with uh, good luck with frenchie when you get that far <laughs> <laughs> with when I get that far, what? Well, when you get as far as asking Frenchie for a joke, just good good luck with that one. Oh, I see. Yeah, hmm. yeah. yeah it's not going to happen, is it? Well, Start with Lucy. See how we get on. He's very droll, Frenchie. He is know. very, very droll. He's just uh, just just on this side of suicide, really. <laughs> That's how droll he is. I'm I'm not convinced he's always the right side of it, if no, I'm being honest. But no, he certainly doesn't like to be seen as a happy person. No. No. It's part of no. his self image, I think. But anyway, back to back to last week. And Paul Forrester reckons we should be writing travel books, bearing in mind we had a little a little jog round LA, didn't we? Oh we did. Yeah, we did. We had a little little jog round and the the riot house and yeah, the pool on and the all roof. that kind of stuff. Yeah. We did. So anyway, Morton Bay, who yes. has now become our our chief pedant, hasn't he? He's yes. the one who who, who co- corrects us on literally everything now. Yes, I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I've got to try to be kind to Morton. So here I am being kind. 
Okay. I've turned well, we're over. All being, a, well, we love Morton. I've turned Morton's her great. over a new leaf. No, no, we do. We love Morton. I just, you know, I, uh, yeah. I don't know how much longer I can stand to be being corrected. But I, I guess if I was to ever get anything right, you wouldn't have to correct me, would you? Well, that's, you see, that's the problem, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the old thing we've got going on here. That pl- if we were, There's plenty of room. If we were close to accurate and we weren't, we didn't just throw out the first thing we thought of. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, so maybe I should be kind, kind to Morton. Well, we give him a lot of ammunition. That's the problem. We give him a lot of airtime. I know. That. We, well, we do. We do. We do. Um, but what he came back to say was, it was 2016 the last time he played in LA. At the is it the 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 Saban Theater? Saban Theater. Yeah. S a b a n. I never knew how to pronounce it when I was playing it. Oh, well, that's uh, good. But yes, that's right. Saban. Reminds me of symbols. They're Sabian symbols. It's Sabian symbols, yeah. Not Sabin. Oh, and you can't who, correct us on that because that's true. It is Sabian on symbols. Who this Morden? Who is this Sabin? That's that's your quest for this week. Tell us who he, who he is or what it is. Yeah. Or we, uh, is it just an area of LA? Who knows? It, well, it could be. Or is it, it some be. old Cherokee Indian? It could be that as well. Yeah, I could see Sabin sitting up on his horse without a saddle on, with his war paint on, looking, you know, fierce and proud. Anyway, where anyway. were we? Yeah, Sabin oh. Theatre. I remember this. I do remember that. In fact, I might have even remembered that half right at the time. I said it was a theatre or something up in the business district. Is that right? Oh, I was almost... On a roll then until maybe it wasn't the one in the business. But it was a theatre and it wasn't the House of Blues. And I, I think I can kind of see it in my mind's eye, but I, I could be remembering some other theatre. It's tricky. Well, he, he reckoned you probably stayed at the Sunset Marquee. Or well, Marquis, it could be. It, yeah, it's pronounced Marquis, but it's written Mar- Marquis. Uh, it's not... It's not it's written, um, yeah, Marquis. It's not written Marquis. We would write Marquis M M A R Q U E, wouldn't we? We would indeed. Uh, but they do call it the Sunset Marquis, even though it's spelt the Sunset Marquis. And we have stayed there on the odd occasion, but I don't think we stayed there last time we played LA because I went round there uh, and met up with Conrado, my mate, my Mexican friend, um, for and his family. And I met up there and we had lunch together. And it was there that he told me that he'd got all of these tumours in his back. Uh, and he was terrified. And he was about to go into treatment for them and he didn't know if he'd get through it. And it was Conrado that inspired the, um, the maintenance drugs section of care because that's exactly what he said to me. He said, they give me maintenance drugs. I said, I'll be okay. After he'd finished all the chemo, um, no one knows how much time they've got left. I'm, I probably, that was probably me reacting to it. And it's worth remembering, you know, it doesn't matter how young, old, how fit, how healthy you feel, you don't know how much time you've got left. And it's worth just remembering that. Right, where was I? So, yes, yeah, so well, I went round and I had lunch with Conrado at the Sunset Market. I remember that. So I can't have been staying there. I think we were staying, you know, a walk away around the corner from there on that occasion. Although in the right. past, past have stayed at the Sunset Market. And Mosley always stays there because he's got a mate who runs the accounts or something uh, who always looks after him. Um, so Ian spends a long, a lot of time in there, and it's a very rock and roll hotel. But it's a, it's posh rock and roll. It's not, you know, six blokes in a van with a load of backline rock and roll. It's, um, you know, where's my limo rock and roll um, sort of hotel. So the stars stay there. Well, interestingly, and this is where it all starts to fold in a little bit because I. I got a bit excited today when I was reading the diary and I didn't actually read the diary. I ended up reading it ahead because I noticed that in a few pages' time, you're going to be in L.A. 
That's true, and we did stay in the Sunset Market on that occasion. And you did stay in the Sunset Market yeah. on that one, which would be whatever year we're currently on. So what are we on at the moment? 2011? 2012? 2012. Right. I was still so we, still working on the Gaza vocal, wasn't I? Uh, you mentioned um, I Sky Above the Rain, actually. Ah, uh, I was on to that one then. I think it was on the Gaza vocal in... in uh, Chicago, and I think I'd sent that to Mike. So then I was on Sky Above the Rain when we got to LA. I think that's what happened. But it's interesting that that came in. So I mm. did read ahead. I haven't read today's. Can't ask you any questions on today's. I'm not ready, but I have read next week's. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which start, I've read today's. To, all right, okay. Yeah. This is it's, it's like a two Ronnie sketch where I ask you a I ask you a question from the diary reading from the week ahead. Yes. And I, and I answer a question that you should have asked instead. From this week? Hmm. Now, actually, if we could do that, that would be really clever. Well, we can, because we are. But not today, because it's too Not early. today. <laughs> <laughs> and that pays homage to our Gerald Wiley listener as well, doesn't it? <laughs> Gerald Wiley. <laughs> all yeah. coming round in circles, this. Yeah. Oh, yes. All coming round in circles. Anyway, back to Morton. You're potted, my lord. You're pale, my lady. Yeah, go on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. And there was an outbreak of got any O's on the patrons as well this week. As well. It's all going on. It's all going on. But uh, one thing that Morton did throw in his little his little tome about LA was um, that it is much safer now than it was ten years ago. Yeah. Yes, I, uh, I saw that. Uh, which was quite nice. And then, actually, update on the sign. Alice did own the O, but doesn't anymore. And it looks like. The the sign was basically gifted back to the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, mm. and it's now upheld by the city. Yeah. So the city now owns the sign, which is great. Yeah. Right. Um, but it ran into trouble again about twenty two thousand nine two thousand ten uh, back end of the financial crisis, and um, and it, and there was a whole crowdfunding thing that went on to basically ensure a it could be maintained and b that. They own the ground as well. So the ground is now owned by the city. The ground it stands on is now owned by the city. Right. And they crowdfunded to to buy you know, to buy the land and it's now an extension of Griffin Park. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Amazing to think that that just wasn't always the case. It's funny yes. how these things that are legendary. I mean, imagine if they, someone discovered that they owned the land under the Eiffel Tower, you know, it had got to go because they were going to build a bungalow. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be right, oh. would it? <laughs> well, it'd be funny. You guess this filthy old thing, get rid of it, I want to build a bungalow. <laughs> you, a French person might say, if they spoke in English. So one of the cast of Hello, Hello <laughs> owns that bit of land. Take your filthy tower. Get rid of it. Must be worth a fortune in scrapper. Uh, yeah. And finally, finally, <laughs> the other thing that we did confirm is you were right. It was Hollywood Land. Ah, well, I I felt that I'd known that for a long time, but then I, 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 you know, there was a chance I've dreamt it. Yeah. All good. All good. And someone said there used to be lights in it. They used to be all full of. You know, uh, oh yeah, a ridiculous number of lights as well. Hollywood Land, that that would have been great. We still had the lights, and that's that's very on showbiz to remove the lights. Mm. But then maybe you know, then then they've had to do a crowd fund for the electricity bill, I suppose, or whatever you know. But they could surely they could put solar panels on the back. Oh. And light it up. It's you know, make it green, make it I, circular. I, I think you should be on the on the blower to the the mayor of Hollywood, LA, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. Get it sorted out. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing how few solar panels you see in LA. Mm. Yeah, that's Which nuts, is just... isn't it? I guess that's because they have swimming pools on the roofs where the so solar panels otherwise could be. They tend to they tend to have. Um, they tend to use their roof roof tops as recreational areas, don't they? In LA, I guess. Hmm. They call them decks, don't they? They often call them deck. Go up, go up. Our swimming pool's on the deck, which is on the roof. Right. Yeah, I guess they do. You know what? That picture of me. You probably know this, but that picture of me 
on the H, on the H, you know, the stevehogarth.com, there's a picture of me, isn't there, in sunglasses with something reflected in the sunglasses. And that is the roof of the, the riot house. That is that pool. And they are the Hollywood Hills reflected in my sunglasses, folks. Now, I actually know. didn't know that. I know the picture you refer to, for which you refer. Mm. Well, I've probably never mentioned it, but that, that is true. That was, that was shot on the roof of the, the Hyatt on Sunset. Okay. And were you, were, you, um, were you closer to buying those glasses than losing them at that stage? Where, where were those glasses in their normal life? Uh, they were just mid-period. They'd been lost a number of times and found again at that point, and the lenses had been replaced several times because babies had bitten them or or had dropped them or whatever. Babies of your own or just random babies who just couldn't try and bite your face? <laughs> no, my own, my own baby. I think, I think when Vibes was very, very, you know, not much more than a baby, he, he bit a chunk out of my Oakley lenses and... Uh, I was no longer able to see through them and had to buy replacements. And I think they were the second lot of replacements. And they need replacing now. In fact, my my Oakleys are a little bit like one of those brooms. You know, I've I've got a sweeping brush here and it's, it's had four new heads and seven new handles. Um, they're a bit like that. Right. I've now got visions of you as Trigger. <laughs> I've, I've literally been triggered <laughs> by that. I loved Trigger. He was my favourite. Oh, uh, how can you not love Trigger? <laughs> Trigger, Trigger was great. Um, and then, of course, we're back to we're then back to mm. Ronnie Falls and Horses because Jim Broadbent was originally offered the part of Del Boy. There you are, big circle again. Apparently, that yeah, I saw that. I didn't realise that Jim Broadbent. That's who Harry Maud looked like. And mm. yeah, it's suddenly taken me a week to get back to that but it was yeah he had he had a bit of a i mean he didn't look like jim broadbent but he was a jim broadbentish kind of chap he was of that you know if jim broadbent's got a a a, a kind of chap harry maud was one of them right mm. right lovely all good <laughs> right shall we work our way on to fear yes Oh, actually, we can't. We can't because I've got one more thing that I have to tell you. (laughs) What? (laughs) While I was away, I was channeling my inner Steve H. Oh, lucky man. uh, Because I lost my sunglasses. Oh, did you? (laughs) Shit. Have you got them back? No. Oh, bollocks. And they were prescription. Could they be in the pub? Oh, no, they they never made... No, I I lost them in the... in in America. In America. um, There's a little... um, there's a little area down from Anaheim, uh, which is actually called Orange. In Orange County, it is the place. It has the place is Orange, and there's a there's a roundabout which they call a rotary, hmm. and it's about the only one in the area. And the, it's it looks a bit like back to the you know the the, the town in Back to the Future in the fifties. Hmm. It's got that fifties vibe going on, right? Uh, and it's all the old shop fronts, and there's an army and navy store, and all these kind of things going on. And there's this roundabout, which is all kind of unusual. And they do classic car rallies round there right. um, because it's this. so everywhere takes their their sort of old fifties cars very low to the road and drives them round that roundabout. No, don't ask me why. Cool. Probably because it's the only one. I'd like to see uh, that. Anyway, we were down at the shops down there, and I and I left them somewhere. No idea where. Oh heck! Oh well. You've just got to, you know, take that you one. Roll with them. How do you cope? How more? do you actually cope in those situations? Oh, I get so upset because I do it all the time, and I get so cross with myself, uh, you know, because I never learn from it. Um, but it's just the way I'm wired up. If I put if I put something down, I, it's I have no recollection of having done it at all, you know. And if somebody even says you put it there. A lot of the time, I'll I would deny that in a in a murder trial. Um, I just what, uh, what are you putting down? Semi-automatic weapons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm just terrible, terrible with my own possessions. But you know, they do have they do seem they come back a lot. You know, so a lot of the stuff I lose, I find again. But I mean, it, I lose it for good eventually. Um, 
but it does a, a lot of it. I, I have major hysterical panics about and and then get it back, which almost makes it worth. Well, it does make it worth losing because the depression you feel when you lose something is only about half as much as the elation you feel when you find it again. So it's actually a win, but it's quite wearing. Mm. But I have lost a lot of stuff over the years. Well, I left my email address with two or three locations, so maybe I might feel that elation if they turn up, if they've dropped behind something, they turn up and I get an email. Yeah, you're in with a chance. I Got uh, half a chance. Last time I lost my sunglasses was in in Brazil when we did a we did a TV show, um, and I think I left my sun. I never saw them again. Oh God! I think I left them in the minibus that you know took us out out there. Lots of frantic calls, you know, I've left my sunglasses in the minibus and, oh, nobody knows anything about that. So um, there's a a much greater degree of wastage in South America (laughs) than there is anywhere else. Fair. Right, anyway, Mm. anyway, let's let's start. Let's go back to fear. Mm, Let's. Let's, Um, because we've only only taken a 25-minute run-up at that. Right. So, you know, what could possibly go wrong? No, um, I'm ready. I got I had an email from James uh and I never know if it's Levy or Levy. I would read it as Levy L E V E Y. And hey, James is the yeah. person who uh compiles the making of albums with Mike. Oh yeah. Yeah, top chap. Um and actually and I didn't mention it to you, but I actually uh I actually said to him today or I dropped an email today to say if he's got 15 minutes and he'd like to jump on one of these fear episodes i'm sure he'd be very lucid and well all those things we said we were going to try and be he'd be infinitely more useful than me to be honest because because he would you know he he would know where all the ideas came from and he'll have them all he's probably got all the dates that these jams were made on and which songs they turned into and everything that i have no clue about he would probably know so he would be a good guest yeah, so I've dropped him a note, and we'll see if he fancies coming on. That's um, an inspired idea, Anthony. Uh, no, thank you, thank mm. you. Um, but the one thing he did say, so he sent me the liner notes for the making of album, and um, it was written and recorded, written, recorded, and mixed between September 2013 and June 2016. Right. Uh, at Racket and Real World. So, but that gives us the start point. That's the bit that's quite interesting, mm. and also. Um, the two other things I was going to harp to from his his notes. One was that everything went to multi-track uh, this time, mm. which I think really helped in the process of building the songs because Mike was able to take individual bits from jams rather than just having two-track. So my first question was going to be, does that ring a bell? It does ring a bell, and the major advantage of that is that we're in the past because of the way we 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 write just by jamming and we jam and jam and jam. We would just record everything. At one point, we were recording it to mini discs and stereo back in the days of of mini disc being a thing. Um, you know, DAT tapes, digital audio tapes, with that, and then I think we we were recording them in stereo anyway on various media. And whenever we ended up with something that we all went, ooh, that's cool, what's that? What did we do there? Um, We'd have to listen to it, uh, work out how each of us played what we were playing at the time and play it again. And that's all very well and it's good, but sometimes you never get the feel back, no matter how carefully you analysed it and no, no, no matter how identically each member of the band reproduced the part that had made it, it just wouldn't have the feeling. And that used to be, you, you, you would then carry on, you'd move forward forever with that slight niggle of, do you know what, the original felt better. You know, don't know why, but it just did. It had something that this just had. Has this still got what it had? And um, so then you get into that circle in your mind where you, you you convince yourself it's not as good. And it might actually be better, but you convince yourself it's not. And you live with that. So 
putting the jams down in multi-track form was great because if anything we like, we'd already got it and we didn't have to try and get the feel back because it was there. Um, and you could work with whatever it was, no matter how simple or complex, it was there. Um, and your task is then not to go replacing bits of it to the point where you lose the feel anyway. Um, you've got to keep an eye on keeping the feeling. And coming to fear, um, that was particularly the case with white paper where Mark had, you know, he'd got this thing with the bass notes moving against it and the 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 way he played it and the sound that he had on the original demo um had it sort of had it had a ghostliness in it that was really compelling and of course he went away and replaced it all and came back so oh, I've tidied this up and made it better and we all went no um and Bit by bit, we managed to cajole him uh, over a period of weeks. We slowly cajoled him to returning to more or less exactly what he'd had to start with, which he didn't think was very good, when we all thought was wonderful. So the thing about Mark, he, he often brings amazing things to the table and he doesn't quite realise himself what's amazing about them. Uh, and, you know, and thinks, well, this will be all right once I've fixed it. And everybody else is going, but there's nothing wrong with it. And then he brings it back fixed and everybody goes, no. Um, so that was particularly a thing with white paper. And we, we poor poor old Mark, we, we, we kept sending him home again for something. Can you do it looser? Can you do it more, you know, looser and darker and... You know how it was sort of un uncertain. Can it feel more uncertain? And of course, that's the last thing a musician wants something to feel. They want it to feel posh and tight, you know, and in time. And um, and so we were having to sort of me, me and Mike were having to slowly cajole him back in the direction of it being a bit more rickety, because we loved the feeling of of that. I was going to say, just when you started talking, I was going to say, did it did it start to tighten and become more metronomic? Because I get a sense from Mark that that's what Mark would, would class as being finished. More proper. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think that's natural, really, that, that as a musician you want something to sound, I don't know, right and posh. Um, but sometimes there's, I don't know, there's a line you can walk really where it's kind of right and posh and not and not quite right at the same time. You know, it's got to still feel human mm. and it's going to still feel like it contains a kind of an emotion within it. Whether And sometimes the emotion comes from the uncertainty in it. And I've said this before as well, but Megan would always take the takes you did just before you knew what you were doing. Um, and then he wouldn't let you do them again. And you go, oh, no, I've got it now, Dave. No, now I've got it. No, I've got it. And uh, Let me do it again. Let me do it again. He go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> go, what? What? Um, and he loved the, the take that just wasn't quite perfect. Um. The problem we got these days, it's not a problem, but it's a, an issue. The issue we've got these days is that um, you can record MIDI as well as recording um, audio. And for the, the non-musos out there, MIDI is just the language of, of, of you pressing the, the keys on the piano, how hard you hit it, how long you hold it down, Um you know, and exactly when and how you hit the notes is all recorded digitally. And you can record that and then you can use that language to um, trigger 
other sounds. So you can keep the performance but change the sound of the instrument that you performed on. That's one option. Or you can then take the performance and you can dick about with it and tighten it up and move notes one way or or another or change notes after the fact. So it's incredibly versatile and useful. But it can be, you can have enough rope to hang yourself with it because, you know, if you quantize it all, which means to put it perfectly in time, it'll sound really tidy, but you'll lose a lot of the the feeling. And so we have to be, we have to be careful that, um, you know, in the keyboard playing department, you can't do that with guitar really so much or at all really. But in a keyboard playing department, you can, you, you know, you can you can tidy everything up to the point where you knacker it. You can also tidy it up and improve it. You know, you just have to keep an eye on. We're not knackering this, are we? As, as you faff with it, it's if you imagine it's it's like a grid, isn't it? And um, and the, and you 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 go through and if you play something and and you play it and you look at it over the top of this grid and you'll look and you go well it's not in, it's not in between the lines mm. it's not where it should be mm. but that's how that's how we play we don't play exactly perfectly it can sound in time but there's always an element where it's not quite there but like you say when you move it suddenly it sounds robotic a little bit robotic mm. Well, um, I was it listening. Just doesn't work. I got. I was listening to Sergio Mendes the other day because we'd been talking about him, and um, I was listening to the the triangle, and it's not in the sixteens. It's there's a late one. You know, I'm exaggerating it to prove the point, but it's like it goes and there's just a slight delay off the back of the beat all the time with every with every with every triangle uh um you know what, what would you call it? every cycle of the triangle part has got this it's not quite in but it gives it an amazing swing if you stop listening to it and thinking that's not quite on if you just stop analyzing it and listen to what it's doing within a rhythm um, it makes everything feel amazing and everything swing, and that's what samba's all about. It, it, you know, samba tambourines are never in time. There's a whole other dark magic going on. Um, it's amazing, and so I was, I was sort of listening to all that the other day, think, thinking, well, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about Lewis when when he said, "Well, do you want this off the front of the beat or the back of the beat?" And you go, "What do you mean?" And you'd hear it. You'd hear it change as he showed you the difference, but you wouldn't hear a difference in it. You'd feel it change. You'd feel you'd feel the groove just move. You know, like your shoulders moving one way and then another. Um, and that's amazing when you when you get into that area of of rhythm. If you take Honky Tonk Woman as an example, well, the start of that song is about five or six BPM different to by the time you get to the end. Oh, yeah. yeah. It starts really slow. Yeah, S- speeds up like a bastard. Well, we used yeah. to do that. We we were we were exactly like that. A lot of that stuff on Season's End, if, if you listen to Berlin, um, across the sections of music, you know, they're, a good, they're about 10 BPM faster at the end than they are at the beginning. Um, and that can be great. That can be great, but it isn't always. But if you did everything, getting back to the point, if you did everything in grids, that would never happen. And no. yet, as humans, it's what we kind of expect to happen. Yeah, but Keith Richards come after you with a very large knife if you suggested <laughs> that he worked to click tracks. Sure and that's not the only reason that Keith had come after you with a very large knife. <laughs> I dare say I'd provide him with, with a whole host of them. <laughs> yes, well, he would just pick that very large knife up from wherever you left it. <laughs> yes, during my murder trial. <laughs> shall we go to? Uh, shall we go to a bit of diary? <laughs> I think we should. Have we said anything I mean- insightful yet? I don't. Well, we've certainly not hit lucid and insightful, <laughs> but we're on our way. 
I don't know how long the episode would have to be to get there. <laughs> 154 hours. <laughs> see, the problem, there's the problem, you see. If we'd started and carried on recording for 156 hours, which mm. is the equivalent of what TCD now is in, in length, mm. maybe we would have got to Lucid Insightful. The problem is that we stop after an hour and start again. We'd, we'd need the loo. Yeah. Well, there's a bit of that. But because we reset every week, we go back to the beginning. We could have, we could do it on commodes. <laughs> or can I call my can I call my commode Mark? Mark. <laughs> Maybe we should do a, a sponsored twenty four hour TCD. There's an idea. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll get I'll get on um, I'll get online and order my commode up. This afternoon. Right. Order us a couple of marks. <laughs> right, well, here comes the diary. After that insightful uh, moment about Mark Commode. Tuesday, 19th of June, Montreal, L'Olympia. Woke to find the bus was parked at the rear of the L'Olympia Theatre, with which I am now fairly intimate, having done two conventions there. Made my way backstage and dropped my stuff before wandering out in search of a Starbucks. The whole area has been pedestrianised for the summer, so the roads are closed and tables and chairs are outside in the street, giving the neighbourhood a holiday feeling, made even more festive and very gay by the million pink baubles strung between the lampposts for as far as the eye can see. This is the gay district of Montreal, and everywhere on the street were guys who certainly looked a little more aware of their physical appearance than us straight guys who tend to be a bit more scruffy. I walked beneath the endless pink baubles until I came across a Starbucks which beckoned me to the first much-needed magachino of the day. I have taken to putting honey in them. I also tend to order a chai latte for good measure, which I can work through once the coffee has kick-started my system. Returned to the gig and spent the rest of the afternoon finishing the vocal comp for the sky above the rain, so that we could upload it to Mike back in our studio in England. After that, I'd agreed to do a TV interview with a French chef who runs a thing called the Rock and Roll Cook, or Heavy Metal Kitchen or something. He was a very charming man with a beard who looked like something from the Old Testament. He was accompanied by a very beautiful wife who operated the camera, while he asked me what my first culinary emotion was. I said boredom with my grand's egg and chips. He then asked if I could remember my first culinary rapture. I think I said the fish and chips from Bamford's on the seafront at Scarborough. I suspect he was hoping for more sophisticated answers. You can take the boy out of the north, etc. He made us a present of wholemeal muffins made without something or other, gluten or wheat or... God knows what, and some homemade almond milk, which I found to be quite delicious. We have also been doing nightly meet and greets with a dozen or so competition winners. It was so hot backstage that I had to bail out of the room halfway through and drag everyone out into a bigger space. I'm still not feeling very well. At one point, a very bohemian-looking lady, who I believe was native Inuit, made a big speech about deserting the band after Fish left and then rediscovering us recently. She said she had brought me a present by way of an apology and gave me a shell box which contains an exquisitely carved bone arrowhead, a beautiful object I will look after and treasure. I was running out of time as I had agreed to sing a BV with opening act San Domingo and they were upstairs on stage, rapidly approaching the song. 
walked out on stage to a roar of recognition and sang said backing vocal. Couldn't hear a thing I was doing. Poor sod did hardly any monitoring, and we complain. The Montreal crowd was amazing, as we expected, and despite slight monitor woes, we had a good one. I lost the plot a little during The Invisible Man when the follow spot operator decided to point it at Pete T for the whole song. So there I was, performing this incredibly intense piece of heartbreak psychodrama in the dark, while, in my peripheral vision, Pete bathed in white light through rock god shapes and grinned at the crowd. I couldn't really blame him, it was a great crowd, but the invisible man deserves a bit more gravitas. As I paced angrily off stage at the end, I had forgotten about the presence of the keyboard riser, which was, ironically, invisible in the darkness. Walked straight into it with both shins and fell on my face. Again, I was lucky not to have sustained any real damage beyond cuts and bruises. I could have been unlucky and broken stroke fractured my legs, wrist or nose. At the very end of the night, I returned to the empty dressing room to raid the fridge for the last bottle of the rock and roll cook's almond milk before climbing onto the bus and onto my shelf. Fortunately, the steroids I'm taking for my voice and chest seemed to stop my shins from swelling up, and I was in surprisingly little pain considering the general wounding and bruising clearly visible on my legs and arms. I'd split my jeans with my right knee when it hit the metal edge of the riser, and yet I felt remarkably unscathed. Maybe I'm indestructible. Thursday, 21st of June. Chicago, day off. Arrived in the sun-drenched street of Chicago and checked into the embassy suites in a part of town which felt quite arty and designy, like an American version of Bath. Opposite was a row of little stylish shops. On the corner was a Starbucks, always a welcome sight in the USA, where, otherwise, the coffee can taste like engine oil. Checked into my room and set up my computer at the table before popping down for a cappuccino. Had a wander around a fascinating little shop full of interesting homey things. Cut glasses, picture frames, quilts, cushions. Lynetta would love it. Crockery cutlery, all with an Edwardian sort of feeling. A painting of geraniums on the wall caught my eye. I ended up buying it. Ironically, it had come from Belgium all the way to Chicago so that an Englishman could take it all the way back to Europe. Spent the rest of the evening working on the lead vocal for Gaza, one of the big songs on the next album, which is currently keeping me awake at night for all sorts of reasons. They're going to call me an anti-Semite when they hear it, and I'll be reviled for it in certain quarters. But sometimes one has to stand up for the oppressed and powerless, and the Palestinians deserve greater public sympathy and awareness. Don't know if a song can ever change the world, but Lennon and Midge and Bob Geldof had a stab. The band are with me all the way, so that helps a lot. I confined myself to headphones for the rest of the day and evening and ventured out around 8pm where I discovered Ian and Phil in a steakhouse on the corner of the next block. It was some kind of microbrewery too, so I ordered a honey beer, which was very nice, and a steak, which also filled a corner. Went back to the hotel afterwards and to bed. Friday, 22nd of June Chicago, Park West. The morning was spent having my roots done in the salon across the street and drinking slow megachinos in Starbucks. We're absorbing another hour of jet lag as we travel west and, although you wouldn't expect to feel just one hour, I guess it's all cumulative and I do feel quite odd. Went shopping to the gents' clothes shop across the street and bought a stack of coloured T-shirts with nothing written on them. Also bought a very nice retro pen made of blue and yellow striped lacquer. Quite unusual and a very nice rollerball nib refill thing. 
I will now have to conclude the shopping apart from trying to find something nice to take home for Lynetta, perhaps in LA or in San Francisco. Around 3.30, the ever-generous Eric Pastore and ever-grinning girlfriend Wendy picked us up at the hotel to take us to soundcheck at the Park West, and I arrived in the familiar dressing room to discover Rick Armstrong, looking very relaxed. It's always nice to see Rick. Soundcheck was lengthy, and I almost wandered off and lost interest altogether at one point, while Mark disappeared into the mysteries of his complicated keyboard rig. It takes him all tour to get the bugs out of it and get it to work all night without crashing or crapping out, and then he always updates the software before each new tour and has to start all over again. I have come to drink beer during sound checks. It's the only way I can cope with the process. I find it much more stressful than the gigs, especially when I'm having vocal problems and am therefore so much more conscious of the time spent needlessly singing and needlessly shouting across the stage in an attempt to communicate. To quote Joe Walsh, I can't complain, but sometimes I still do. Returned to the hotel and had an excellent light dinner in the hotel's Italian restaurant on the street, watching the people go by. It's hot here in Chicago, so everyone's out in their summer gear. A universe away from the pleasant but rarely glamorous view from my cottage window in England. Unless Lynetta's going by, of course. After that, it was time to dive back into Eric's squeaky-braked jeep and back to the park west for the now-routine meet-and-greet. I think Lucy decided we don't have enough to do on these gig days. Joe Walsh again. The meet-and-greet was, as usual, very pleasant and good-natured, and then it was time to get ready for the stage. We're opening with the Invisible Man. Might as well hit them with a whopper, as Mark H calls them, for starters. My sound was kind of strange, but I'm used to it now. Part of the decision to make this tour involved a major compromise with the monitoring, and we just have to accept that. The crowd were great, and I left the stage happy but knackered. I'm giving 110% every night, and I can really feel it. Saturday, 23rd of June. Chicago, Park West. Spent most of the morning in Starbucks with Rick Armstrong. He's having a hard time of it at home lately, and for what they're worth, I'm offering my own perspectives on marital breakdown. Avoid the lawyers as much as you can and stay close to the kids. I returned to my room to continue working on the Gaza lead vocal. That took up the rest of my free time before leaving for soundcheck. Andy and Anik popped in to photograph the process. It's a mental way of making an album, but our life has become road life and hotel life. Technology now makes it possible to turn every hotel room and broom cupboard into a recording studio. All you need is a good laptop and a decent audio interface. Off to soundcheck again with Eric and Wendy. Why do you need to soundcheck again when it's the same venue and the equipment hasn't moved? I hear you ask. A good question. We tend to change the set list from night to night, and this usually involves songs which we haven't played for days or weeks. Everyone feels better if such songs get a run-through before we're in front of people. That way we can recall the chords and check that the technology works. Just before the meet and greet tonight, my mobile rang and I stood in the dressing room to hear, Hi Steve, this is Andre Kuypers calling from the International Space Station. We had quite a long chat. I passed the phone round so the band could share the thrill. He wanted to thank us for the music. A phone call from space. Bloody hell. I hope he's paying for the call. Well, that got the night up to a good start. And we're back! (laughs) 
And so one other question that comes out the early part of the liner notes, because I'm not asking you about the diary because I've read next week's. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, so, um, though I think you were in Chicago for part of this, and I could ask you about Chicago, but I really like Chicago, but we'll come back to that. So mm. liner notes. Mm. Mike apparently asked, and I think we've talked about this, but this is going to put it in the right time frame. He asked you all to take an album in that you that as a reference point for fear. Oh, yeah, he did. I remember that now. That was a really great idea. Um, and I think what he'd hoped to ascertain by doing that was, was where the five of us were coming from because he'd been working with us for years and, and I think that, no had been clue. A, that had been a question that had hung over him. <laughs> so where the hell are these guys coming from? And I think in an attempt to find out, he asked each of us to bring in, a, I, don't, I don't was it just one or was it three or five? But he, he asked each of us to bring in a handful of what we felt were our favourite things, you know, to listen to. And each of the five of us brought a thing in and, you know, with the idea being that we would perhaps... I don't know. Not 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 to steal anything, but but perhaps um, almost to educate ourselves into the kind of music we should make next. You know, we should make something that's that's the kind of thing that we love, um, rather than the kind of thing we felt we ought to be doing. You know, I, and I don't think we do really do that, but. It's it's worth keeping an eye on that you don't get into this. Um, oh yeah, this is what we do thing. Um, you're better off going. This excites the fuck out of me. We should do something like this. Um, and so we all brought a track in, or two or three. Um, and I can't remember what each of us brought in, but of course it was pretty nuts. It was a pretty mad selection of music. I think Rothers probably brought in a Kate Bush track and a Sigur Ross track. Mosley probably brought something in that just sounded like a steamroller crashing down a mine shaft. Um, that's probably harsh. But it, he probably brought, you know, some jazz in or some magma. Um, I don't know. Mark probably brought some, brought a piece of classical music in and a bit of Rufus Wainwright. Um, Pete would almost certainly have brought in either a jellyfish track or, um, what was that thing he used to play on? Ben Folds Five. Ben Folds Five, yeah. He used, he kind of went through that as well. And he probably brought Strawberry Fields Forever in or something like that. And I probably brought in, um, you know, a Blue Nile track. And um, what else would I have brought in? I don't know, a bit of Prefab Sprout probably and a bit of Massive Attack. And so to try and pick the bones out of that lot, you know, and and go, oh, well, that, that's where this band's coming from. Um I don't know if Mike learnt anything from it, but of course, I remember him saying later on, it was interesting you all brought those different ideas in because when you actually came to jam, you you were no near nowhere near any of that. You know that wasn't what you were doing. So the music we make isn't really the music we we listen to. It's another thing. Um, but having said that, this you don't really want to be copying people unless you're the Rolling Stones and you just want to be like one of those old black blues players. Um, we're not really that polarised in... In in how we we don't imitate our influences. I'm sure the influences are there, but they're they 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 might sit in the subconscious a bit more than something we overtly imitate. Um, 
But I think the Blue Nile thing did come out a bit in uh, in white paper, mm. you know, and a few people have commented on that, um, that perhaps melodically, you know, this, the the way the notes move around, my my it might be a bit of a homage to to Paul Buchanan. Um, although I'd like to feel I'm not, we're not ripping him off overtly. Um, certainly not lyrically either. I think that the, the lyrics are probably a good deal more intense and, and spelled out. Uh, is that fair? I don't know if it's fair. But but perhaps that came out a little bit. Um, you know, and I think the Floydy thing came out a little bit as because because Rothers loves his Pink Floyd. And I think that might have come out as a feeling, particularly in the the early verses of El Dorado. Um, so there we are. I I can hear bits of later Floyd. I don't hear I don't hear as much early Floyd. I can I can hear some of the the, mm, the but, last couple of albums. Well, as I say, it's almost like. Something sitting in the subconscious rather mm. than, oh, let's try and do it like this. And those things, they become like a, a, a sensibility rather than a template. Um, and so you might, you, might, you might wander into that area without sounding like it. Um, there's a section in the levers... Um, my favourite, my favourite twelve-string guitar moment. The, the moment I wait all gig to do the, and I've always called that the thunderclap Newman moment because it reminds me of call up the instigator because there's something in the air. It reminds me of that. I don't know why it does because it's not like that at all. But it paints that same picture. It's got that same sense of, of of feeling of psychedelia about it for me. Um, mm. So I've always called that the thunderclap Newman moment. Um, and again, it's that- the same where I can see. I can hear. I can hear Snow Patrol, but not directly. I can hear Radiohead, but not directly. I can just hear them floating around in there. Yeah, may, may, maybe the channeling that 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 we radio edits no patrol are all channeling the same things at that moment the things mm. we grew up listening to uh because we're of similar um we're of similar ages i guess we we you know we're generationally similar so we probably all grew up listening to the same music and obviously then we've all gone and done our own thing and you know expressed ourselves in our own way but that that may be what happens i don't i i, mean, I, I, I don't really know I, much about snow patrol i know a lot about radiohead yeah um because I'm, I'm i'm a big radiohead fan um so it's a miracle we don't sound more like radiohead more often really isn't it i I actually think it gets really granular. I think it's often in a, it might be in a, um, a very small guitar phrase or a very small keyboard phrase or or, or a, a, a piece of vocal melody. I hear I hear it in really little bits. Not, you know, there's not like oh that chorus sounds like or that thing sounds like. I hear it in really tiny bits, mm. which is probably where the Blue Nile thing fits in as well. It's just an odd reference here or there. You go, oh that just you know that reminded reminded me of. Is probably more like than sounds like. Yeah, I know what you mean. The eye, on the other hand, can't seem to settle down. I mean that—that's very Paul Buchanan. Um, but it's—you know—he's never done it. But it's the kind of thing you could have written, I mm. think, that moment. And I'd, I'd had that kicking around for the On the other hand, can't seem to settle down. The, the way it falls and the, the, 
the Sinatra-esqueness about it. Um, I'm glad I managed to sort of get that in. Um, so, you know, Mark, Mark had got the king kong, king kong, ya dee da 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 So he'd got that, and then, and then I probably wrote, on the other, da 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 um, something slightly more, I don't know, maybe that's a bit more music holy. I don't know. Um, what were we on about? I've gone well, on. we were just, we were just, it, it starts with the albums, doesn't it? And I think the bit that Mike arrived at, and I guess we arrived at with this, is that whatever you guys listen to and what you're inspired by and what you're, you know, feeling doesn't directly work its way into the music. What you, what you produce is something that sounds different. It isn't just a patchwork of all those influences together is mm. what Merlion is. But what I, we've arrived, we've then finally got to is, but there's odd little bits here and there where it, where it pokes through. Yeah. I'd been banging on about Steve Reich uh the american sort of pulse music composer um don't know if you're familiar with his work but he would create music for sort of nine grand pianos and he'd and he'd have each person just going you know and then he'd have another one playing another thing and the, the whole thing would blur and blur and roll around um and I first heard that in the sort of early eighties, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And I think he's influenced a lot of people. So when we came to when we came to write the levers at the front of it, I remember saying it'd be great if we did this like Steve Reich, you know, music for mallet instruments, and um, and and get all of those 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 pulses rolling around. Um, so Mark had got the and I think I'd got a marimba against them um, and trying to set up that that sense of, of, of motion because the levers is all about never standing still it's about motion it's about arriving you know, putting on a show and leaving again and being gone before everybody wants you to go. Uh, and maybe before you even want to go yourself, you've gone. And and so much of your life is about the journey between places rather than the places as well. Um, you know, quite a lot of my diary is, is not about the shows. It was, oh, we had a good gig. It's about getting up in the morning and, and getting there and what I did and where I woke up. And, um, and so f- a musician's life is, is about movement a lot of the time. And there is a lot of hanging around as well, but you're quite often moving while you're hanging around. So it, I wanted to try and get that, you know, where the levers and the, the road rolls beneath us. The, you know, this thing's travelling, um, this l- little society of people. Is, is is always moving, you know, and jokes that span fields and all of that. Um, the the thought of but when I was a kid, I've seen this strange engine as well. When I was a kid, I used to imagine the people asleep in their houses, hovering in the air, uh, one floor up. Imagine if you couldn't see the houses and you could, you know, or the floors or the bedrooms, you could just see people. Lie, lying sideways, <laughs> twenty feet in the air. How crazy is that? You know, and I used to imagine everybody in the street asleep, floating. Um, and the levers is 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 a bit like that. You know, I'm imagining the laughter that that goes by at seventy miles an hour, or or the the you know the parties, the the bottles that are being opened, and the conversations that are being had going past um and and going from one town to another um so that's what i meant by jokes that span fields um i meant you know two blokes having a laugh um at high speed 
It's like that, the longest ever golf putter, wasn't it? Because that was done on an aeroplane. <laughs> and it was something like 12 miles and 200 feet because it went from one end to the other. But in the time that it took for the ball to get to the hole, they'd actually gone however many miles in the, yeah. in the plane. Well, I think Einstein got relativity out of that because he he imagined... He well, he he first of all, um, for whatever reason, he realised or he purported that light has a finite speed and it can't travel slower than it travels and it can't travel faster than it travels. So, if you're on a if you're on a if you're on a vehicle if you're on an aeroplane travelling at five hundred miles an hour and you're shining a torch. The light, in theory, must then be travelling at the speed of light plus 500 miles an hour, but it can't. So what must then happen? And uh, he concluded that time must have to bend. And that's that's when you get into um, relativity and your brain starts melting. <laughs> And that's where we're going to leave you for 156 of TCD. <laughs> With relativity and melted brains. <laughs> and love. And lots of love. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>